0: The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Uniting houndsmen across the globe, from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Welcome to the Houndsman XP podcast. This is episode 330. We've done this 330 times and we try to do it different every time. And this episode is no exception to that. So in my lifetime, I don't think there has been anything that has altered hunting more than this issue that we're going to talk about today. Uh, It's definitely affected houndsmen across the country and i've even known houndsmen to pick up and move and relocate because of the introduction of the canadian gray wolf into the rocky mountains and the northern great lakes regions it's a tough one Um, if you hunt in wolf country every day unfortunately it's not a matter of if you will encounter wolves it will be when and the level of devastation that these animals can create for you is um, unparalleled. We're talking about a pack of wolves being able to wipe out years of hard work, breeding programs, alter breeding programs. Houndsmen are changing the way they have to hunt their hounds uh, just because they don't want to hunt all of their genetic firepower in one hunt, so they'll hunt one dog, one brother one day, and the sister the next day, you know, just to reduce the risk of, of losing their work and their hard work. Houndsmen have to be extra cautious in wolf country. If you find a track, a lot of times that leads to hours of driving around Looking for wolf tracks going into the same area. There's whole areas of the country, whole regions of the country that um, are not being hunted, called wolf pits. You know, you take some place like the Selway in Idaho. That's an area that I've heard referred to as a wolf pit. There are some houndsmen that still hunt it. Uh, it's, but, but they know the risk and they're taking a big one. But there is a group out there that's making a stand. And I've got Justin Webb with me on this podcast from Foundation for Wildlife Management. Man, these guys are getting some stuff done and they are bridging gaps between the hunting community and, and, um, between the hunting community and wildlife managers and, they're just doing a lot of good work. Justin is a great spokesman, and I'm not even going to try to upstage him. I can't tell you anything about Foundation for Wildlife Management that that Justin Webb can't tell you better than me. Check out the show notes for a link directly to Foundation for Wildlife Management. They need your support. They're paying out thousands and thousands of dollars in, in wolf reimbursement money for wolves being taken off the landscape they're getting it done folks check them out check out the show notes for that link also check out the show notes for all of our sponsor links all of our sponsors are listed on every copy of the show notes that come out it's a direct link if you're looking at it in apple uh, podcast it's a direct link in those show notes Check them out because they support organizations like Foundation for Wildlife Management because they support this show. So it's a it's a like a circle. We're building we're building blockchain information here. We find the sponsors that want to sponsor this show, then we feature groups like Foundation for Wildlife Management to keep you informed. So we're all working for your best interest. Our best interest is Houndsmen. If you really want to get serious, join us on Patreon. We're getting tons of people coming on board in Patreon that are supporting this show because they like shows like this. They understand the big picture. They understand the importance of standing up and protecting our freedoms. And you can join the ranks of these extreme performance houndsmen. All you got to do is look for any of our show announcements on social media, go wild, Facebook, Instagram, it's all there. It's all got a link to our Patreon page. You're gonna be entered into monthly drawings. You're gonna be if you join us at the highest level, you'll be given a $70 value in a sportsman's alliance membership. So again, we're full force multiplying here, folks. Hope you understand and, and kind of see what we're doing. We're trying to do some force multiplying. When you join us on Patreon, We're also going to enroll you as a member of the Sportsman's Alliance, another premier group that is protecting your freedoms. You're going to be included in semi-annual drawings, annual drawings, deep discounts, all kinds of bonus material. So check us out on Patreon. You can find all of this information if you go to our website at houndsmanxp.com. Let's get down to business. It's time to talk to Justin Webb and talk about the Foundation for Wildlife Management this one's a box shaker folks let's get the tailgate down it's time to dump the box you me now? yeah all right there you are you hear me okay on, it was on my end i'm so new to all this <laughs> I, I i am too to be honest
1: it, it took me a few minutes to get all squared squared away set up here this morning but
0: <clears throat> yeah yeah so now we uh You've only done 325 episodes you'd think i'd know how to use zoom by now
1: but uh, that's definitely a whole lot more than when i've been on zoom I, i've only been on for a few meetings most of the time i try to just do audio
0: yeah yeah well hey it looks like you got a pretty good setup there Are you in your office yes sir yeah this is my makeshift office i've got this set up out in my outdoor kitchen and uh have internet and wi-fi and everything out here i call it the the houndsman xp base camp and uh there you go yeah we hunt out of here and do different stuff it keeps the mess out of the house too so works out good works out good Me bad
1: i i like it i i got a makeshift office myself we, we've got uh, really poor phone service and our internet's even worse so i I'm actually running the, uh, hopefully this doesn't cut out. If it does just know it's because I'm running my phone off a cell phone booster and using my, um, the, uh, wifi connection for internet through my phone as well. So hopefully, uh, we can stay solid on here, but my uh, makeshift office, my, the the baby of the family, uh, is, is, uh, 20 years old and just moved out recently. And so we kiboshed his bedroom and threw up some hides and Figured this would be my F4WM office now.
0: My my baby just moved out too. He's 21, and uh, as soon as he moved out, then my wife just kind of moved in. <laughs> so I'm still stuck out here. <laughs> I'm still stuck out here, Justin. I don't know what's going on, man. <laughs> yeah, gotcha.
1: And happy, so, happy wife, happy life. That's what they tell us.
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, Justin, I'm glad that you joined us for this episode of the Houndsman XP podcast. You guys are doing a lot of cool work out there for uh, Foundation for Wildlife Management, and I've been watching you for a long time, and and, um, I'd just like to talk about what got you interested in that, and we'll cover it all, but let's just start out for anybody that's not heard of Foundation for Wildlife, you need to be following this group supporting them they're doing a lot of good work there especially in the northern rockies so lay it out for us justin
1: i i really appreciate that you know i appreciate the support there chris Sorry, i'm gonna meet my phone here real quick but um what got us started down this road well i'll tell you um growing up as a kid i actually had a wolf as a pet um we had no a seven eights wolf no Yeah, just an absolutely amazing dog, smart as can be, but you could not keep that thing home. You know, it was uh, it was a challenge and a struggle at all times, but um, very high spirited animal. That being said, is that one of his
0: hides on the back on the back wall there? Is that is that him? No, couldn't (laughs) couldn't bring myself to do that. No,
1: but uh, I'll say this though, you know, um, I grew up watching National Geographic and. I have always been amazed and just uh, enamored by wolves and, and their behaviors and the dynamics of, of wolves and wolf packs and different things. Then, you know, around, I'm going to say 2008, 2009, what had gone from being a wolf track here and there when we were in the woods turned into there's wolf tracks in every drainage. And, yeah. and then from that, it yeah. went from it went from having a wolf's track in every drainage to dead elk and dead moose in every drainage.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and you'd go snowmobiling up Lightning Creek out of Clark Fork, Idaho here. And what used to be the family adventure had turned into you couldn't go up there without finding a moose with his hamstrings chewed off and his innards hanging out his backside, still laying there in the ditch with his head up. Right, and and it uh, you know people started to really question what what is what is happening, what's going on here, and we just started to learn that wolves are not what we were taught them to be, and you know all, all of the thoughts about you know they only kill the sick and the weak and all these different things. I was actually working for the Idaho Department of Fish and Game doing waterfowl habitat management back in uh, the early two thousands, and at that point they had a collared wolf that uh, they were tracking that had come over from Yak, Montana. And uh, it had come down through the the wildlife management area there that we were working in. When they found her, she was standing over a six point bull that was perfectly healthy prior uh, that she had just killed by herself. And that was a real eye opener to me because I had always, you know, kind of heard how uh, wolves just helped keep the the ecosystems healthy based on the animals that they that they prey on. And and that
0: didn't add up. It didn't. Match wolves change ri- rivers. Haven't yeah, you? right.
1: Yeah, they, they changed the <laughs> saved Yellowstone. They the wolves oh, saved yeah. Yellowstone single-handedly. Yeah, yeah, yeah brought beavers back. Yeah, the, the beaver transplant program didn't have anything to do with that. No the, no. The
0: wolves brought them back. You know, I, so, I think I don't think you're too off far too far off base there, Justin, because I think deep down inside, you know, we've all got at one time had an admiration for the wolf. I mean, you look at some of the the sayings that that we've, we've got out there like, you know, the strength of the wolf is in the pack and, you know, lone wolf. And, you know, we've all tried to identify it sometime. And then now we're looking at reality and it's staring us right back in the face. And we're like, Whoa, you know, now it's almost like a dirty word. I don't want to use, I used to use that saying the strength of the wolf is in the pack. I don't dare say it now because it's such a heinous, dirty thing.
1: Yeah, I I agree. It's really become, uh, you know, a negative to anybody who lives lives with wolves. Yeah, Um,
0: absolutely.
1: So I'll share, I guess, when people started recognizing those issues and we started seeing uh, dynamics of elk herds changing, uh, was probably the, the biggest attention getter. Guys who were Extreme backcountry hunters who hit it hard and were successful every year chasing elk started talking about how none of those bulls would bugle anymore, and, mm-hmm. and anytime they had bulls bugling, the wolves would show up and run them off, and and they were frustrated by that, and that led to all of a sudden there's no elk where we elk hunted. You know, you you could climb three thousand feet in elevation to get into a backcountry basin that has had elk in it our entire lives. And elk don't live there anymore. You know, you'd find a set of running tracks going through there with wolf tracks behind it. So there became a lot of frustration, and and then after seeing the the mass killings, you know, there was a, a drainage in an area that I elk hunt. Um, a gentleman that lived up there actually found, I think it was twenty seven cows that were killed in one in one little drainage uh, mm. during a, a week and a half time, and and none of them fed on. All of them were just chewed up, and so. Locals started getting frustrated, and there was a a close-knit group of backcountry, passionate elk hunters that said, we've got to do something about this. And so when uh, we got our first season, I think that was in 2009, so the delisting was in 2009, we got our first season after that, that group thought that they were going to just forego their entire elk hunting season and just target wolves. And what happened was everybody went out and chased wolves and, and didn't harvest a single one. So fast forward the end of that season comes around, they're they're having meetings and putting putting groups together and, and talking about what can we do, what can we do. And all of the research that that we had done said that trapping was the only effective means of actually controlling wolf populations. You know, they've been controlling wolves or, or working at controlling wolves in Canada and Alaska for generations. And so uh, they called up the only local trapper that they knew and said, you know, we'd really like to buy you lunch. You know, the outdoors community is not real social. And so that's a, a right. out, of, out of the ordinary proposition, right? You get a phone call from from some strangers that say, hey, you know, we'd like to have you come into town and, and uh, sit down and talk to us. They sat him down and, and didn't beat around the bush. They said, we need you to teach us how to trap wolves. And he said, no, he said, I, I don't trap wolves. And the guy said, well, do you hunt elk? And he said, well, of course I hunt elk. I live in North Idaho. That's how we feed our families. And uh, one of the guys says, well, then you're obligated. You're the only guy we know that knows how to get this done you're obligated to trap wolves and he said you don't get it i'm i'm obligated to feed my family i'm obligated to keep the lights on at my house mm-hmm. he said this is going to cost you so much money you won't be able to do it and one of the guys said well i just spent three thousand dollars chasing wolves this season i skipped my own elk hunt to, to try to accomplish this he said i wish i had just given you that money and had you go take some wolves out where i hunt elk and uh, from that, the conversation kind of turned to, no, we're, we're serious. What'll it take? We'll pay you. Yeah. And after some conversation, he said, you know, for 500 bucks, uh, a wolf, I'll, I'll at least give it a try. I'll run some some bigger steel while I'm Bobcat and Martin trapping. and they started laying money on the table. No kidding. So the you know that that uh, throughout a couple of weeks' time kind of morphed into, those folks calling all of their buddies and all of the, the local hardcore hunters and saying, man, this is your opportunity to help. Let's pay these guys and get them in the field to uh, to harvest wolves. And from that, um, you know, somebody was smart enough to say, well, hey, we probably ought to check in with Fish and Game about this and make sure we're not doing something that's not legal. And so... Okay. Uh, A few meetings with the wolf biologist and and fish and game department and uh, hired a lawyer to set up a 501c3. And that meeting uh, from those nine or 10 guys has grown into an organization of of, uh, about 4,000 members um, who have removed over 1,900 wolves with about $1.6 million generated through fundraiser banquets membership and uh, some grant funding.
0: Man, that's a, that's an amazing story, Jess, and I want to I wanna really keep that going. I've got some questions, though, on some comments that you said. So y- you said that you mentioned that your research showed di- different information there. So how did you gather that research? What did that look like? Um, you know, was it just opinions of sportsmen, or was there some kind of actual data produced from research that you guys did?
1: You know, I, I think it was a combination of of anything we could get our hands on. You know, there mm-hmm. there was uh, some contacts in uh, through some different forums, such as Trapperman.com. Um, you know, uh, a lot of online research uh, simply typing in. You know, success rates, um, hunting success rates, uh, hunter success rates in Idaho are less than one quarter of one percent. It's you know, it's it's profoundly uh, different. In comparison, trapper success rates have been as high as 37%. We just yeah. don't have very many trappers that, you know, can make that commitment. We've got some, some, uh some laws that, that uh, direct us to be at every trap set location every 72 hours in Idaho and every 48 in Montana. And so it becomes a, you know, once you set a trap, you're married to that thing. And a and guy, if you've got a full-time job, it's virtually impossible uh, mm-hmm. to do so the you know the research to answer your question the research that was that was done we started reaching out to anybody and everybody we we knew or could get a hold of that lived in alaska or canada where where people had been managing wolves for for generations
0: how difficult was it for you to find good research um you know we mentioned that video that came out a few years ago about wolves changing rivers i mean the the the, the pro wolf keep them on the landscape Lobby is strong and it's well backed and it's, it's got a lot of influence in it and it even influences projects like that video that came out that wolves change rivers and single-handedly saved Yellowstone. So how mm-hmm. hard was it for you to find valid information and stuff and, and all that stuff that it takes to, to, you know, start getting the attention of people. Cause we'll get to where you guys are now, but it's impressive. Go ahead.
1: So um, I, I don't think it was difficult at all. I mean, anytime you, you type in state game management agencies, you can look them up and, and uh, request information on harvest numbers. It's mm-hmm. you know it's it's not that big of a challenge.
0: But um, there weren't any you know, harvest there weren't any harvest numbers though before two thousand and nine, except in Alaska and Canada, right? Exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah. So that was the only data that we had to go off of was Alaska and Canada.
0: Yeah. So I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, how in the world? Do you even get a headcount, you know, a a population dynamic study or anything that comes out of the states that's not massaged for, you know, uh, the gain of certain certain organizations and things like that out there?
1: Well, so I'll tell you a couple of things. Um, And this, we didn't have this information or we hadn't found it yet back then, but the, the biggest go-to info that we have at our fingertips is the 2009d listing rule itself written by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Mm-hmm. And, and in that, it cites different studies that started to clear back in the 1970s. Those studies identified, well, I, you know, people say, well, it's so hard to, to help somebody understand the problem because there's so much false information out there. I disagree. Even a seven-year-old kid can understand the basic concepts of biology. Every living animal has to have a set amount of food, water, shelter, and space to thrive. Food, water, shelter, and space is labeled suitable habitat by biologists. That's mm-hmm. that's the, the descriptive, right? So they studied the suitable habitat within this NRM DPS uh, Northern Rocky Mountain Distinct Population Segment area, which is comprised of all of Wyoming. Idaho, Montana, the eastern one-third of both Oregon and Washington and a section of Utah and they identified that there's enough suitable habitat within that range for 1,100 total wolves.
0: Was Colorado they, they, included
1: in that? Colorado's not included in that in that system. Mm-hmm. so 1,100 total wolves in the entire system they stated in that delisting rule that anything over 1500 wolves in that area, would cause chronic livestock depredation problems and it would be forcing wolves to live where wolves don't belong in mm-hmm. unsuitable wolf habitat. And it said that they would also slowly deplete their own prey base, uh, namely elk is, is, you know, their, their number one prey source. So knowing that and, and, trying to understand the dynamics of that and how that compares to, um, you know, what's been taking place over the last 10 years. Uh, it, that's kind of our ground zero. I mean, the, the, that's the basics of biology and what we keep coming back to. At that point in time, though, uh, back then, we didn't have that information. We had not found that in the delisting rule yet. And so uh, we spent a lot of time just talking to people who had been trying to manage wolves in certain areas. Um, the It's sad, The these different videos, I'll just use the, the Yellowstone video as an example. Anybody who knows anything about, let's just say hydrology, as an example, they talk about how uh, the woody vegetation was brought back because the elk numbers were decimated to a point where they weren't, you know, feeding on all this woody vegetation. And so, therefore, that strengthened the riverbanks. Mm-hmm. For anybody who's ever worked managing a dam, why is woody vegetation never allowed to grow on a dam dike? Because woody vegetation root systems create waterways yes. and it erodes yes. the, the river dike. There's so much misinformation in that video, but the common Person who especially who lives in the city and, and doesn't have a rural community that they, you know, are integrated into, will never catch that and don't understand that. So, right. they 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 are really good at telling a better story than what we do, and and they do so with misinformation and people eat it up. And for that reason, they've got millions of supporters out there who think that that wolves are the best thing on earth.
0: And, yeah, and it's, it's they interesting it's interesting you brought up the hydrology part i i've spent my whole life you know in an agricultural community and working on farms and we had our own and different things and you never let a tree grow on the on the dam of a you know watering hole for your livestock or whatever because the roots sink down in there they they create perforations and you end up with dams leaky you know yep. Um, so even in, even in the heavily forested areas of, of Southern central Indiana, South central Indiana here, you'll find these ponds or these lakes in this heavily wooded area and the dams are always kept clean. So that's an interesting, that's an interesting uptake right there for sure. So when you start looking at the, the studies and the different things you had to dip into to canada and alaska what did you say about the the numbers that you were seeing in the system that you're in right now recap that again i missed it
1: so the 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 populations um That we have right now, uh, we've been at over, uh, we had been at over 1,500 for at least five or six years that that we are aware of. Mm -hmm. This last season, the the population counts based on our camera studies um, dropped to I think it's the Mm -hmm. mid-1300s, which would have been the very first time to date that that populations uh, had dropped, uh, you know, in a considerable amount of time. Uh, back when our very first season took place, populations dropped because those wolves weren't educated yet. And, right. And so they weren't fearful of man. Um, but wolves are the most amazing animal I've ever been around. And they learn faster than any other critter I've ever pursued. And and it's um, that's one of the things people, they have this misconception that because I operate this program or, or you know, but I wouldn't say operate. I serve as the executive director for this program, but somehow I hate wolves. And, and I, I gotta tell you, I've got more respect for a wolf than any other critter we have. They they are absolutely amazing animal. They just reproduce so fast. We can't keep up with them.
0: I'm I'm glad to hear you say that. And it clarifies a lot of things that even we as hunters face all the time from the anti-hunting public and even the non-hunting public is that somehow we don't have a deep respect for the wildlife that that we're you know we're out there hunting because we're hunting we can't possibly respect it and we respect wildlife at a deeper level than they can ever even imagine and we've done it with our time our dollars and and you even look back at the beginning of the Pittman-Robertson fund sportsmen said yes please tax us we want to pay taxes to save our wildlife and that's unprecedented in in any any uh demographic to say yeah please raise my taxes so yeah you know and that that turned into 2.5 million dollars a day that we're pumping into this system and uh, I listened to another example of that is I listened to a lecture by dr Uvaris geist um you know this guy understood wolves he studied wolves. He understood the impacts and all that stuff. And he was talking about the intelligence level of wolves, you know, and it, it was really intriguing. And while he had a deep respect for the wolf, he also understood what needed to happen with the wolf. It was
1: really a true. lot of people, I think they, they miss the concept of predator versus prey. So in order to have a healthy predator population, you have to have a healthy prey base for them to feed on, mm-hmm. right? So it goes back to the suitable habitat, food, water, shelter, and space. So most people don't seem to grasp the concept that that we've spent 130 years using what we call the North American model of wildlife conservation to build Wildlife populations maximize those populations for our enjoyment, whether that's, uh, you know, consumptive use or recreational viewing or, or whatever the case. We have worked diligently, sportsmen have, have through programs such as the Pittman Robertson Act
0: mm-hmm.
1: dumped millions and millions and millions of dollars and, and spent years and years and years building these populations up. So we have this prey base now that's substantial. Then you introduce uh, 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 apex predators such as wolves, when we've already created balance through hunting uh, and, and management work, and we already have uh, predators on, on the landscape such as bears and lions, you throw the wolves in the middle of all that, and it tips the scale. And And what happens when those wolves consume the majority of their prey base, what happens to them? They have no food source. They die from disease and starvation. And so unless we're able to manage the predator base, We can't have the healthy prey base that we have worked diligently to build. Um, RMEF does a great job of, of, uh, you know, showing those examples, you know, back in, in, uh, I don't remember the, the early 1900s, there was 550,000 elk. Now there's over a million, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's this conservation effort that sportsmen have, have implemented has generated the healthy numbers of ungulates that, that we have today. And, and allowing the predator base uh, to be kind of, you know, tipping the scales collapses that. Yellowstone's a prime example. There, there was 25 wolves or something that got killed coming out of Yellowstone last this last year mm-hmm. because they had seasons expanded there in the state of Montana. Everybody's up in arms over it. Oh, my gosh, you ruined meltdown. Yellowstone. Yeah, absolute meltdown. Not a single person stopped to ask why those wolves left the park not a single one. I went to the commission meeting and I asked that question. If you read the Yellowstone report, it talks about how the Junction Butte pack, 34 wolves strong, had four litters of pups. Four. That pack, all of the pups left the pack prior to 10 months of age due to food stress. There's not enough elk left in the park to feed those wolves. And when they leave, they're not going back. Those wolves that are being harvested, there are dispersing like wolves do you can only put so many predators into a section of the ground that doesn't have a prey base that can sustain them and expect them to stay there that's not going to happen
0: well that's why i was wondering about the the scientific part and how much false information you're seeing out there and i'll tell this story i had a friend of mine that that went to the park this past year and um the elk were in the lawns around the lodge that he was staying in and he got to talking to one of the park employees there and was asking him about the elk and and the impact of the wolves and they said oh yeah they've had an impact but but we've got a healthier elk population now (laughs) so this park employee had drank the kool-aid and was regurgitating some of the things he had heard and totally escaping my friend that the reason the elk were laying in the lawn is because they were using the lodge for a predator shield and <laughs> i i asked him i said how many of them had fang marks in their back in their hind ends and before they got there you know you saw the scarring and stuff so th- the national park service is perfectly happy i'm gonna make an assumption here because it's just my view but you know, I think they're perfectly happy with having a few elk laying around the lodges where people can take their pictures and stuff like that, and then and then out amongst um, in the real wild places, then they're kind of turning a blind eye to the whole thing, just due to political pressure. It's been such a weaponized issue. I've never seen a wildlife species that has been so weaponized as the wolf.
1: Couldn't agree more.
0: So. Yeah. The reason I wanted to talk to you, another reason I wanted to talk to you, for one thing, this whole thing fascinates me. You know, as houndsman, um, obviously there's a real threat there with wolves. I know several of my friends who have lost hounds to wolves. Um, and that in and of itself is is a tragic thing that, you know, we grew up hunting, hunting in these areas. And now all of a sudden we spend, the first part of the day, looking for a lion track, and if we come come across a wolf track, then we're spending half of the day seeing if the wolf tracks have crossed out of there or if this basin's even clear. So you've got that stress level, but but do you have any information on what this has done to the established populations of lions and bears in these areas where wolves have depredated the prey base?
1: So. Um I, I don't, sadly, I don't have uh, specific hard data to quote mm-hmm. for you. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, lions and bears are are difficult to get population estimates on. Um, our lion population in the state of Idaho, we actually our Eastern Idaho Houndsman Association, got a $30,000 grant a couple of years back to collar lions, specifically in an effort to estimate what our population is. And, and that came as... Uh, I'm not gonna say as a result of, but kind of in response to the fact that the collar data on the elk that fishing game put collars on showed that lions took more of those elk that were collared than the wolves did. And so that kind of became this big public, oh well wolves aren't the problem. Lions are. I've seen
0: the same Basically. thing about black bear.
1: Sure, you bet. You bet. And I think it's I think it's pretty common um I'm not going to say misinformation outright without having hard numbers and data to throw out there. But I can tell you this. A bear and a lion reproduce every second to third year, and they have one to two cubs typically. Wolves produce every single year. 30% of our packs are are having more than one female bred in the pack. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so average pack size of six, average litter size of seven, that's 14 pups per pack in a lot of those packs every single year Mm. with just just doing basic math what does it take in in genetically engineered dog food to feed one 100 pound dog through a year that that's a lot i mean that, that that is a ton of food so you start talking about having 20 wolves in in each 250 square mile home range and then break that down and compare it to the number of cats and bears that will even tolerate each other within a range that big. Right. And and the math doesn't add up. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. So back to the concept, we don't really have uh, you know, um, a solid uh, estimate on what our populations are for lions. But I will tell you this, a mountain lion that used to kill a whitetail a week and camp on it all week and feed on it all week, Now, when he kills something, the wolf packs have learned that they can run him off that kill super easy. Yeah. And just like every other cat and dog relationship, I think that those those wolves get a kick out of running cats to start with. (laughs) And on top of that, uh, you know, now that lion has to kill four or five times before he gets a meal. And and one of the dynamics that people misinterpret, in my opinion, All of a sudden, we've got mountain lions showing up in people's backyards all over the place, no different than those elk in Yellowstone Park. And I don't think they're there because they love eating house dogs or house cats. I think they're there because they don't like being pressured, and and the Mm. wolves aren't willing to go there. Um, We've got numerous documented cases now where we've found bears that have been dug up out of their dens by the wolves in the winter months and and killed. Um, I don't know how many grizzly bears that's happened to, but uh, I'd imagine it's some.
0: There's got to be some, yeah.
1: Yeah, you bet. And and granted, you know, people will say, oh, no, well, a mountain lion would kill a wolf in a heartbeat. You know, there's all this, you know, sometimes, yeah, you, you get a couple of pups that, that tree a big tom. He's going to hang out there in the tree for a little bit and pretty soon he's going to have enough. He's going to come down and kill one of them. Uh, can't agree with that more. But um, that being said, I just think that the wolves vastly impact the other predators on top of, you know, destroying those predators' prey base as well. You know, there's a huge amount of competition there.
0: So, so I think everybody's pretty well dialed in on, you know, in today's day and age that wolves are bad, (laughs) you know, especially in our (laughs) crowd. You don't, you don't have to, you don't have to do too much work to find allies on that opinion. And um, so tell us, what the organization what your organization is specifically doing some of the programs what you've implemented some of the results you've seen how you've been received by by the government agencies who are responsible for controlling the wildlife stuff like that but let's start with let's start with how you came up with the name foundation for wildlife management because i think most people that haven't ever had a conversation with you, simply look at your organization and say, oh, that's the organization that kills wolves. Yeah, you bet.
1: So I'll tell you the name. It's an interesting conversation. Uh, Most, uh, sadly, a lot of people look at what our organization focuses on a lot of the time, and they think that we're a bunch of bloodthirsty redneck killbillies who don't care about wildlife, and, and they don't understand so you're not blood. Process.
0: Are you not bloodthirsty? Or are you not redneck? No, but you are hillbillies, Both. right? All, all we, of the above. All the can, above. We can we can be hillbillies. Hillbillies is good.
1: You, you <laughs> bet. So I just got to share with you, though. I mean, uh, wildlife conservation and my biggest pet peeve to date is the confusing. You know misconceptions in the difference between preservationists and conservationists, and and I absolutely despise it when I hear all these preservation extremist groups labeled as conservationists. Because oh, not.
0: they have hijacked that term, Justin, and they've turned oh, it against us. Just you know, you, see, it, you know. Oh, uh, I could For go. Anybody, on. It, we have we have gone on rants about that, but just in case just, nobody's heard <laughs> it, when you see a news organization naming a conservation organization. And then they talk about non—you know—not hunting. They are not a conservation organization.
1: Non-consumptive users—they label themselves non-consumptive users—and they call themselves conservationists. And for those yes. that don't know, a preservationist believes in no use at all. A conservationist believes in wise use without abuse. Conservationists are what built the wildlife populations that we haven't enjoyed today. Conservationists are what fund 100% of wildlife management. Conservationists. Are, are you and I preservationists are all of those lawsuits coming at us saying, you don't have a right to kill this. You don't have a right to kill that. Uh, right. So anyway, I don't want to go down that road, but preach. Now I've, side, <laughs> I've sidetracked myself and I don't remember what the heck we were talking about now.
0: Yeah. Tell us how about, t- we were talking about how the foundation for wildlife management got its name got and its how name. you've been mischaracterized.
1: Right. So um the way we viewed things, prior to having a program that could help was we had grown up hunting and, and camping and living in and enjoying the back country of North Idaho for all of our lives. You know, when we were kids being in a small town, we didn't take extravagant vacations to go to the Bahamas. We, we went to elk camp that's vacation. That's yeah. where we learned respect for the land. That's where we learned how to get by. That's where we learned how to build fires. That's how we learned survival. Uh, that's how how you know we learned to leave it better than we found it. Cleaning up other people's garbage at campsites, things like that. That was our vacation. So the way we viewed it, this animal that had suddenly shown up on the landscape and exploded in population was devastating everything that we loved. Mm. And and so the question came, what do you call an organization that that that's working to resolve that issue? And in relation to wildlife management, one of the guys said, well, that's the foundation. If we don't get this under control, we're going to lose it. And and so with that, the foundation for managing our wildlife was the topic of conversation. And so Foundation for Wildlife Management came to be.
0: So do you think we're really going to lose our wildlife or do you think we're just going to lose our wildlife at the levels that we saw it in its peak? in the you know the the late 80s early 90s um you know deer hunters never have enough deer elk hunters never have enough elk hound hunters never have enough bears and lions to chase so do you think that's a real threat did your group believe that or and what do you tell us why you think that it's very much
1: a real threat and and i'll i'll tell you the reason why is because we've seen it um two years ago maybe it's three years ago now I took a trip through an area, uh, in the Coeur mountains where, uh, the, the world record in, I think it was 1984, came off a of pack saddle mountain up there and it held the record for four or six years, something to that effect. When I was a kid, that area was chock full of elk and you could not locate a place to camp. If you didn't get there prior to season opener, right? Mm-hmm. Every pullout, every campsite, every uh, wide spot in the road had somebody in it and I'd go up there uh, went up there a couple of times hunting with my uncles and my grandpa and uh, a few years ago i went back through that same section of ground and in 76 miles of that back country up there where i run my wolf trap line i videoed and took pictures of campsite after campsite after campsite that's now covered in in blow trees grass grown up to your waist on opening day of the most popular elk season in our state i didn't see a single hunter in that 76 miles of that backcountry. Wow. And and so, you know, to say um, or to ask the question, you know, do we really believe that that's going to happen? Yeah, I absolutely believe it um, because I've seen it. Now, is our belief that those elk are going to go extinct? No. I mean, they, they, they've adapted and learned how to live with wolves and how to survive. But um, I will share with you this. The majority of Idaho's elk population right now, lives in farm fields and river bottoms and people's backyards and and so much so that in southern Idaho, those cows that used to come out of the backcountry and calve in the in the river bottoms and in the valley floors each spring and then spend the summer months taking those calves back to the top of the mountain and live all through the fall uh in the backcountry basins, they refuse to go back up the hill because mm-hmm. of all the wolf pressure that's up there. So being a repetition family oriented you know, the, the lead cow no longer leaves the valley floor. Those calves are born there. Those calves now don't know they're supposed to live in the mountains. They've never left the valley floor. And now the Fish and Game Department's having to cull elk at 200 head at a time for crop damage problems. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's not that the that uh, elk and mule deer are going to go away. It It's the, the change in dynamics. And I can tell you this, to be successful right now hunting elk, most of Idaho goes to Farmer Joe's field. And I can tell you this too. I don't want to hunt elk in Farmer Joe's field. That's not elk hunting to me. I want to hike 3000 feet in elevation in the dark and, and, you know, watch the sun come up with bulls bugling in the high country basin below. Mm -hmm. That's elk hunting to me. And, and when I say, you know, I believe that we're going to lose that. That's the dynamics of elk hunting and, and elk populations that, that I fear losing. I want my kids to get to have that experience that I've had. And, and it's sad for me watching it go away.
0: How how much pressure were those elk putting on the ag community prior to the, the introduction of, of, you know, the, the beginning of the wolf outbreak?
1: I would say very minimal. In fact, there's, there's uh, vast portions of our state that had never had a crop depredation claim Prior to wolves changing the dynamics of where elk live, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you, for a number of years, I was frustrated because the fish and game department would advertise, you know, oh, we're in the heyday of, of elk hunting. You know, we harvested more elk this year than what we have in 20 years or what have you. The parts that they would forget to tell anybody are that we open cow seasons that used to be four days during the month of October to start in August and run through February. hmm The part they didn't tell you is that the elk that used to be harvested in those high country basins are now being shot 20 at a time out of fields, you know? And so it's, there's some, some misconceptions I I would say in, um, one of the arguments I hear all the time is, oh, well, Idaho doesn't have any, any wolf problems because you still kill the same number of elk. What are you complaining about? And they don't understand that the majority of those elk are being killed in areas that elk have never lived before.
0: Yeah. And the problem that I see is you've got this propaganda machine going or this, let's just call it spin, you know, and, and you're moving those elk into the, the ag communities now, and they're doing that damage there. Well, the ag, ag lobby is very strong, very influential. And so they're throwing up their hands and saying, Hey, we can't have the elk mowing down our alfalfa and and all this other stuff so whose desk does that land on it lands on fishing games so they issue the depredation permits kill elk now you're still showing the same numbers you always kill it's it's all this stuff has caused such chaos not only for the elk hunter not only for the farmer but in government you know right now i know that that you know lot, mountain lions are taking a lot of the heat And they've lifted quotas and different things in the state of Idaho because the outfitters are upset because they don't have the numbers that they need. So, you know, to be able to sustain their operations. So it's a bigger issue than just, you know, one piece of data. You got to look at the whole picture and put all the pieces together in order to really understand what this is. It's not just a war on wolves and it's not just it's not that simple.
1: It's not. It's it's extremely complicated. And there's so many different uh, aspects to the conversation in regards to just elk alone. You know, and I'll give you another example here. So in all this time of, of working through conservation to maximize our ungulate populations, we now have, you know, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation doing huge expanses of controlled burns and plantings and all these things to create winter range habitat for elk that Mm -hmm. used to come out of the backcountry basins and and they would winter on these prime you know now uh man-made prime winter habitat areas the wolves run through there and push those elk off of there that that generation of elk has learned that this is our food source this is where we live in the winter months now those elk have been run off of that the Not only were the conception rates based on pressure from wolves during breeding season lower than what they had been previously because every time an elk bugles, it's a calling card for the wolves and they come right, right. in there and run them around. But now those same cows are forced to, to live through winter on on less than prime winter habitat. Many of those cows abort their fetuses. Now the whole elk herd is no longer living on that winter range habitat because every, the wolves have figured out that's where the, the food source is. And so they pressure them off of it. Now we've got elk scattered all across the countryside, living in deep snow where they're having to, you know, fight right. struggle their way through the winter months. And then on top of that, wolves can run on top of the snow and the elk can't. And right. so, you know, right. when they come into to an area like that, they knock elk down left and right. and And then they go about their business. People think, All right. Even from sportsmen, I hear, oh, well, wolves are evil and they just want to kill everything. And I disagree with that. If I took my chocolate lab that's never been in in a a farmer's field into a field filled with sheep and one of those sheep took off running and I didn't correct him. What would he do? He'd chase it down. That's Mm -hmm. what they do. It's a canine instinct. When something runs, they chase it down. When they catch up to it, they chew on it. They don't know what else to do. Well, he didn't run it down because it didn't feed him this morning. He ran it down because it ran. It's no different with wolves. When they run those elk down, it's not because they intend to kill them. It's because it ran. And and their triggered instinct, you know, being a predator, is to chase. When they catch up to it, they chew it up. When it falls down, well, he didn't chase it down and kill it because he didn't just eat the elk that he killed yesterday. He's already full. He's not hungry. And he goes about what he's doing. So that kind of dynamic... It happens all the time and I you know yeah. I don't think wolves are evil and I don't think they intend to kill any of that stuff that they kill other than when they are hungry. You can tell a big difference when you find a, a wolf kill that they have killed for food and they're hungry. There's not a speck of flesh left on that carcass. It, it, you know everything all the way down to the hawk is is consumed mm-hmm. and they do a very good job of cleaning it up but then you find you know one day i found six moose in one drainage that had the noses chewed off the innards pulled out the backside and not one time that year did that wolf pack come back and feed on any of those moose so you know the dynamics <clears throat> of of uh, the wolf issue just like you said it's it's vast and there's a lot of different aspects to it and and you know yeah we get the people get the impression that we're just crying wolf all the time because Wolves do have such a large impact on everything in their ecosystem, and there's a reason that U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said we only have suitable habitat for 1,100 in this system, mm-hmm. and, and being at over 3,300 <laughs> now for numbers of years has had a devastating impact across the
0: board. No doubt. No doubt about it. So it's a complex issue. I, I'd like to know how your region up there managed to get that wolf season implemented because our friends up in the Great Lakes have been very unsuccessful, have continually battled out still Michigan still doesn't have a season. Wisconsin's had a season, but they've battled back and forth whether or not they can actually, you know how they can implement it and and different things like that. So I'd like to talk about how you ended up with a season and help our friends. In the great lakes region give them some tools to figure out how to how to get that established up there because it's my understanding the great lakes uh population is greater than than any other region in this in the country
1: yep agreed so i'll share this with you um there's a political aspect to this conflict and issue that i think uh we are very blessed in the political realm of our state and in, in that we, you know, a lot of our legislators are part of the ranching community. Mm-hmm. A lot of our, uh, you know, a lot of our state reps um, are, we're, we're, we're more of a rural community. You know, our, our main population hub is Boise and, and uh, it's not that big in comparison to a lot of places.
0: So, yeah, is it still the number one growing city in the country?
1: It is sadly. Yeah. Yeah. Things are changing rapidly for sure. But that being said, you know, having that political climate, I think is a huge benefit, but I'll tell you this, when we first started seeing all those changes and we started going to the fish and game department and, and begging for their help and saying, you know, we think that we can get this done. We can help solve the problem. Um, if you'll just give us the tools and the seasons to be able to do it. So We would write up, uh, in the first couple of years, we wrote up these big extravagant proposals for extending trapping seasons, for extending hunting seasons, for allowing us more tools. And they were gracious. They'd come and meet with us. They'd hear us out. Um, They'd sit and talk with us. And they'd say, you know, guys, we we understand the concern. We understand the problems. We really appreciate all your efforts. It's nice to see you guys all, all, you know, putting your minds together, but there's no way we could implement all this stuff because the Idaho trappers association would never support this. After hearing that the second time I was frustrated because we worked really hard on trying to identify ways that we could increase our wolf harvest to be able to hopefully control their numbers. And uh, that was their presentation to me. And so I got online and finally looked up who are these Idaho trappers association? Who is this? And why would they oppose, you know, what we're doing? And it turned out they had an event coming up that weekend and, I jumped in my truck and I drove nine hours and just pulled into their little convention. And this big stocky guy comes out and meets me at my pickup. Obviously, uh, you know, I was the one out of place. And uh, he'd come up and I just explained to him who I was and what I was doing. And I, I wanted to understand why they wouldn't support our proposals. And mm-hmm. I ended up spending three, three days with them there at their convention and uh, talking about the importance of unifying our voices and the importance of setting any differences that we have aside so that we can accomplish, uh, you know, the things that, that we want to see happen. So fast forward to the next year's commission meeting. We, we wrote up some some joint, you, you know, united proposals, and we took them in there. And I'll never forget this. My own commissioner, uh, we walked up to him, Rusty and I did, together. That, that individual ended up being Rusty Kramer from the Idaho Trappers Association. He has now gone on to become the uh, president for the Idaho Trappers Association, as well as being on the board for the National Trappers really great guy. But uh, we've been working together um, for a number of years now. But next commission meeting, we walk in there and my own commissioner says, guys, you know, good job. It's so great to see you guys working together. The, you know, you've worked really hard on this. We really appreciate all your efforts, but we're not going to be able to implement these things because the houndsman would never go along with it. Uh, and Rusty, said, Rusty says, that's funny. We just bought them dinner and they're going to testify for us here in a minute. And, and his mouth dropped open. And that that year we got just about everything we asked for. And, and what we learned and, and what I've been preaching for a long time now is, you know, as sportsmen, as, as rural communities, as the ranching community, we all tend to, I mean, we have our own organizations because we have specialties that we're focused on and super passionate about. And, and that's amazing and great and important. But when we interact with one another, there's all this nitpicking and, and you know, there's guys that believe that if you're shooting a thousand yards, you're not hunting. There's guys that believe that if you're running dogs, you're not hunting. There's guys that believe that, uh, you know, you know, there's traditionalists and there's long range gunners and there's houndsmen and there's trappers and there's bird dog guys. And there's, you know, all these different sportsmen's groups. And we nitpick at each other all the time. If we don't stop focusing, on the things that we disagree on set that stuff aside and start uniting our voice on the things that affect all of us that we do need to change that we can create positive changes out of we are going to lose the fight and and that's what we found in idaho and how we have accomplished our goals to answer your question when we walk into the fishing game commission meeting they know ahead of time that that proposal that we bring to them is backed by 90% 90% of the sportsmen's groups in our state is backed by the Farm Bureau, the cattlemen, the wool growers. It, it has profound effect. When you walk into a commission meeting and say, I've got 600 members and, and this is what we see and we, we'd like to see some changes, it's a whole lot different than when the Director of Government Affairs for the Idaho Farm Bureau walks in and says, I'm here representing 180,000 Idaho families. Right. So Those guys get out of their chair to come shake our hand and welcome us to the meeting. It's it's a whole different different perception and and a whole different dynamic because we we've already vetted our proposals through the largest most profound organizations in the state and we come united if there's things that we can't all get on the same page for we'll try to to uh, make concessions and and give and take it's it's a some lengthy conversation sometimes but in my opinion, that's what's allowed us to create the positive changes that were needed. We we have built the, the most liberal wolf harvest seasons on the continent outside of Wyoming's predator zone where very few wolves take up residency to start with.
0: You are speaking Houndsman XP Gold right now. We have built this whole show after that message right there, Justin, you know, about breaking down bar- barriers, bridging gaps i don't want to hear that you can't work with deer hunters or deer hunters you just need to go communicate you you know you guys are showing firsthand that you can break down the barriers and you can unify around the important things we don't have to agree on all the small issues about whether or not we agree with this type of hunting or that but we better darn sure well get on the same page when it comes to the big issues and support each other and and if you look hard enough, you can find ways even to support people on their small issues. Houndsmen need to find ways to to get involved and work with other people. We talk about breaking down tribalism all the time. So beautiful message. Well put.
1: Thank you. It's something I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that that concept of what we've been able to build. And, you know, and um, I don't want to put the I don't want to Give a message that somehow I led that charge because that's not the case. This has taken an army of people who are willing to set our differences aside and and get down into the nitty gritty and say, you know what, we know we need positive changes here. And, and I know we may disagree on this, this or this, but by golly, I support you. And you know what, by the way, I'll be at your fundraiser banquet this weekend. And I'm going to come stand next to you when you get up and present uh, something that's important to you. When the houndsman community says, you know what, we've got um, uh, too many lions being taken out of this section of ground and, and we need support to try to, to make sure that we uh, are not over-harvesting. We're standing there shoulder to shoulder when it comes time. And, and it, you know, it's a give and take being willing to support one another is vital to our cause. We've had a lot of houndsmen in the beginning said, gosh, you know, We understand you want to kill wolves, but we don't want to have our dogs caught in traps, uh, you know, in the backcountry every time we turn loose. And so we don't want you trapping in the early months before the winter flows, you know, before the snow flies and you got to fight the the freezing conditions. Right. And over time, uh, you know, we've been able to help them understand. We kind of have two choices. Uh, I work as a hunting guide for uh, individual an outfitter who makes the majority of his, of his, uh, income for the year running lines. And
0: talking about, uh, you're talking about Leon. Yeah. We can give Leon, uh, we can give Leon a shout out. Leon Brown. Leon Brown with with Clark Fork Outfitters. Great guy. I I, uh, grew up
1: with him, went to great school with him and, uh, I've been guiding for him for the last few years. But, um, you know, one of the things that people have really come to realize is you got two choices. You can risk having your dog get pinched in a trap and have, have a tender foot for two days, or you can risk turning your dogs out and hearing those wolves howling oh. and trying to physically get your body between those hounds that are out running you three times as fast as you can move. Right. Uh, in between your, your, your hounds and that pack of wolves. And, yeah. and there's, you know, uh, I'll share the story. Leon will probably kill me for this, but, uh, I ran into Leon <laughs> on the mountain one day, I was going in to, to pick up to check traps. I ended up catching a couple of wolves that day, but uh, I was going in to check traps and he comes blowing around the corner in his pickup, just hauling butt and he slams on the brakes and he, and he, um, he says, you know, I, I turned my dogs out and I got wolves howling and stuff. And there was tears in his eyes and, uh, there's nothing that'll melt a man's heart faster than hearing wolves howl. It they're yeah. dropping in on a good pack of dogs and it, I've, it, uh, you know, the, anyhow, just, just sharing. There's some so of the, much th- that we can do to work together to solve those
0: problems. Some of the most devastating stories I've heard from houndsmen, these, these guys are hardcore. I mean, real tough, tough individuals. Um, Are the stories about losing hounds. You know, it's, it's more than just, it's, it's more than just the fact that they've, lost the hounds, something that they have worked so hard to develop and, and, um, train and put their passion into it, but they're losing it to a system that they don't uh, that they can't rationalize. Why did this have to happen? You know? Yeah. And, and that's, that's the frustrating part. So you really get, you get a huge outpouring of emotion when you see that for sure. So, i had a question and you're doing such a great job of of laying this out for us justin that i kind of lost my train of thought but i think probably one of the things you could talk about a little bit would be how our friends in the great lake region approach this issue because they're facing the same things i know people that aren't hunting in the UP of Michigan anymore because of, of wolves. I know some people that are still there and they still hunt. Uh, but I know several that are like, nope, I don't go there because of the wolf population. And and there's nothing being done. So how can can people begin right now to, to resolve this issue? Before you get there, I remember what it was. And it goes right along with what you you were talking about. Would you rather go to... Uh, a commission meeting or go hunt an elk would you rather go to a fundraising banquet for an organization that you know the houndsman that you don't run hounds or would you rather go to your kids ball games um you know s- something that you're passionate about i think all of us know the answer to that so
1: yeah you, you bet i you know sometimes the job gets a little stressful and somebody will be giving me some grief and you know, I'd be lying if I if I said I was too big a man to have the thought cross my mind of you know what, I would much rather be fishing or I'd much rather be watching my boy wrestle right now. Right. You yeah. know, I would much rather be at home with my wife. Um, I can tell you I've I've been on I've probably been at home. Nine days, maybe 10 since the first of the year. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the rest of that time has been sitting in a booth or at a banquet or at a legislative session or sitting in the in uh, the Fish and Game uh, Commission meetings uh, for both Idaho and Montana or, you know, going to to meetings, uh, doing podcasts, um, traveling around.
0: No wonder you're stuck in that little bitty room in the house. The door's probably locked from the outside yeah yeah it's,
1: there, no, there, no there there's a lot and it's not just me either that's the thing is you know it's an army of guys that have that have made the commitment yeah. to set yeah. things aside and you know i'm I'm a big family first man that's something that I've always always said but a part of that I, I I'll tell you in my mind I justify the time away from from my family and doing things that I otherwise would love to be doing because if I don't. If if nobody did, the life I've been so blessed to live is gonna go away, and my kids won't have that. My grandkids someday won't have that. Right. It, and and it breaks my heart to think that they won't have the opportunity to hike three hours in the dark and sit on a ridge top watching the sun come up with elk screaming underneath of them. Because in my mind, that's the pinnacle. That that's you know it, so much more than than the 350 bull or the, you know, the, the 20 inch bear or whatever it happens to be. Some of the best times in my life have been sitting on that mountain or hiking that mountain. And and I want so badly for our next generation to get to have that. And, and I, I sometimes I just have to ask my, myself the question, if not me, who?
0: Well, that's, that's exactly what we try to talk about all the time is, is we all love to hunt. We've all got a bunch of other stuff we would rather do. I hate going, I hate doing shows. I, you know, I just, I have to go. I know I have to go when I was working full time, that was part of my job and I'd get assigned to go to the boat boat sport and travel show, or you get assigned to go to this show. And I, I developed a real dislike for doing that. So now running this podcast, going to those meetings going to those conventions i went to so many convention it was all just you know verbal grease and fluff and the the big guys getting up and when this is when i was working professionally their opportunity to give get up and give themselves a big pat on the back and and also maybe throw you a crumb or two and say oh yeah and you guys did a good job too you know i just developed that real dislike for that sort of stuff and now you know, when I go to, I just got back from the, the Michigan Bear Hunters Convention and I looked around and saw the excitement in the room. It's changed in that aspect. And we are always talking about the importance of, hey, we've all got a lot of things we really like to do and love to do, but sometimes we got to boil it down and do what we have to do. And that's what I'm hearing from you, Justin, is, is you saw what needed to be done drove nine hours to talk to the trappers, and boom, took off. Yep. So, yeah,
1: they, you, you just have to be willing to take that step and don't be afraid to fail. That's another thing people think, oh, well, you know, they must have it easy because they've accomplished all this stuff. I What people don't ever hear about are the proposals that we put forth that get shot down, the proposals that we showed to the director of Fish and Game, and he says – Guys, we can't do that yet. This is you know, this is XYZ problem. This is gonna uh produce um you know, this could potentially cause us to lose our bear baiting permits on federal land. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of a lot of aspects of what we're doing. I just I can't emphasize that enough. You can't yeah. be afraid to fail. You just keep keep fighting and keep working and, and well, keep striving. Look- and, and if if I said to you that I, you know, feel as though the success we've found has come fast enough. I honestly thought that within two years, we would be where we are today. And and we're, you know, we started this in 2011.
0: Yeah. So 12 years into it and you're where you are now. And and that's the encouraging thing is you don't have to go. We're not talking about each individual going out and starting an organization. Support the organizations that are out there. Support the Eastern Idaho, the Michigan Bear Hunters, the Montana, you know, whatever your organization is. I really don't care if you don't like the guy that's the secretary for the organization, you know, put all that garbage yeah. aside. And if you don't like the way things are going, then get involved in and, and be a part of the solution. And Because if we don't, we're going to be ineffective in the future. So let's get back to that question I had about, let's give, let's give some, have a conversation about what our great lakes region can do to um to be successful because now i just got a um, a news clip the other day about possible wolves in new york which is going to be in that great lakes region so they're they're facing facing a problem up there too
1: you bet Uh, that would be the very first um suggestion i would have is set a time and a date and a venue to have a meeting and invite the lead for every sportsman's group and every ag industry uh, organization that you know. And and put your heads together. Talk about, uh, you know, what, what, what are the opportunities? Uh, when is legislative session? What contacts do you have? When is your Fish and Game or Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting? And how, you know, understand the dynamics of of how rules and regulations and seasons are set and altered. Um, I can tell you that when I first went to a couple of fish and game commission meetings, I had always thought that one day I would love to be a commissioner. And then I realized those guys have to deal with and make huge decisions on topics that I know absolutely nothing about. And, yeah. and the, I mean, it's, it's vast. I went in there and started hearing about, you know, pelicans eating trout and th- you know things that I would never have any, <laughs> any knowledge about at all whatsoever. And yeah. these poor guys are, are getting hammered from all sides. They can't do anything right. You know, right. they're, they're going to hear from preservationists. They're going to hear from hunters. And uh, boy, it's it's a interesting dynamic that takes place there. But I learned so much in the first two years of making sure I was at every commission meeting on the process. What does it actually take to make the changes? A lot of guys... They they go to our fish and game meetings and they scream and yell and they throw their hands in the air and they say no you won't do anything for us. They don't understand that there's a system and a cycle and a process to be able to create change. Understand what that is for your state. Learn it. Talk to the people that have been successful in creating change. Um, you know one of the things that started with with f 4 wm in the very beginning the the small town close knit group of guys that started this organization didn't want it to ever leave the county they thought that we you know we just wanted to to make a difference where we hunt out that was the, the whole process right. um and then we actually went into the dynamics of well you know uh, XYZ here he actually hunts the cellway unit and he wants his membership mm-hmm. money to go to killing wolves there right. um and so for the longest time we allowed people to do that actually you could You could join as a member and then tell us where you wanted those funds used. The problem was only so many guys are being successful harvesting wolves. And so we'd end up with huge amounts of funding for the XYZ unit. Nobody in there targeting wolves at all whatsoever. And we're out of money over here, that kind of thing. So um, just sharing, you know, uh, it's really important to understand the process of creating the changes that you want to see. Going in and, and ranting and raving and, and throwing a fit and then walking away because you didn't get your way doesn't accomplish much. Um, the I guarantee you there's people within your departments that are willing to help you better understand the process. And unless you follow the guidelines that are set forth in creating those changes, you're not going to be successful. And, and we started out unsuccessful. We started out throwing a fit and, and it didn't work. Right. And so we had to go back to the drawing board and say, OK, we tried this aspect. We tried bullying. We tried fighting our way in. It didn't work. What else can we do? Let's invite them to a sit down meeting and explain our concerns, explain you know, who we are, what we believe in, that we're not you know, extremists. Um, let's sit down with a couple of legislators and tell them <laughs> what we see as problems. And maybe they can help us understand the process of creating those changes. That's all stuff that has to be understood before you get to the drawing board. So, you know, it's great to have a concept and idea of what change you want to make, but you have to know how to make that change and and throwing a fit about it. I've learned through experience, uh, (laughs) doesn't always get the job done. Um, you know, we talked a lot about this program being that we're predator related in, in concept. Rockman and Oak Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, Bighorn Sheep, every conservation group in the nation has one issue that, that they all have in common, and that's predators. And, yes. and the discussion has been had that as F4WM grows, the Foundation for Wildlife Management grows and expands. If we can ever get to the point to where we can successfully uh implement our program in an organized fashion, uh and still keep all the loopholes closed to keep out of lawsuits and all these different dynamics that come with being a conservation organization, managing creditors. As we're able to grow and expand and be successful at implementing it the right way, um, I could see F4WM having chapters all across the, the country. Uh, we have, we've expanded from Idaho. We now have five chapters in Idaho, uh, three chapters in, in Montana, and we do fund wolf harvest in Montana. Rusty Kramer and I uh, last winter um, did a uh, trip down through Wyoming. Uh, we had four different meetings down there and had some interest in starting some chapters. And we just never really um, kind of got sidetracked doing some other things and never really uh, moved on that. I've got a meeting down there uh, April 29th. Actually, we're, we're putting together a meeting in Wyoming um, to look at potentially expanding there and funding wolf harvest there. So just throwing this out there in the future, as, uh, you know, different States obtain the ability to manage wolves, we could potentially start f 4 WM chapters and would be happy to come and help. Um, even prior to Oregon actually reached out to us a number of years ago and asked if we'd be willing to fund mountain lion harvest in their state because they lost the ability to run cats with dogs. And now they got cats coming out their ears. Um, you know, uh, more recently, as wolves have, have dispersed into Washington and Oregon, multiple people have reached out to us asking what we can do or would be willing to do to help. And uh, I challenged Oregon here this last, um, I guess it was back in December, at the, uh, there there's a couple of folks um, from Oregon that were at the NASC Summit, the National Association of Sportsmen's Caucus uh, Summit uh, over in Bozeman, Montana. We were just talking about it, and I said, you know, if you guys want to start an F4WM chapter, for no other reason than to educate people, um, we'd be willing to do it. We just have to put together a meeting. I'll come give a presentation on what a chapter looks like, how we operate, what our focuses are, um, and we can talk about that. But it doesn't have to be F4WM. If somebody's willing to just step up and start working to unite your sportsmen's groups, and and start learning the process of what does it take to create change, whether that be seasons, tools, uh, you know, legislative rule um, uh, there's, there's a lot of different dynamics in each state that make up what positive change requires. And, and you have to understand that to to make it
0: happen. Right. Well, I can think of two organizations right now that, that, um, you know, the Wisconsin bear hunters association and the Michigan bear hunters association, uh, they've got a lot going on for them. You know, they, a lot going for them. They got a lot going on too. Um, two very well organized groups that are effective. You know, I've been to both their conventions. There are numerous legislators there, full-time lobbyists. Um, you know, they're really making an impact for their membership. So my question would be if, um, somebody from the MBHA or the Wisconsin WBHA reached out to your organization could they expect some collaborative effort and maybe some partnership there from from your organization to help them or uh, at least expand their influence to be more effective in their in their wolf management programs in those states
1: most most certainly would be excited to help um the one thing that I want to just be clear on though however is that uh, in, in reference to funding, our funding goes out the door just as fast as it comes in because right. we're reimbursing for Wolf Harvest. A lot of organizations, they, they have fundraiser banquets and they stockpile money. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, those accounts grow and grow and grow and accrue interest. And then as a branch or chapter of that organization comes up with a the project, they apply for funds out of the main account to be able to accomplish that task. F4WM has has at this time has one mission, one concept. As far as funding goes, we're reimbursing wolf harvest. And so um I don't know the exact numbers. I want to say this year we probably reimbursed for 350 wolves-ish or so. And as we come to the close of season, the guys that have that are successful consistently often stockpile all their wolf harvests until the end of the year, and then they submit all those for reimbursement. And so we we have a, a huge outflow of funding yeah. um, all at once. So uh, we've had people say, "Well, well, can't you just fly out here and you know, and and give a presentation, and talk to us about all this stuff?" And and uh, and I said, "Well, yeah, you know, if you're willing to help us generate some funding to support it, absolutely." Um, but at the same time, our dollars are going to to in in the pocket of people who've been successful. A lot of folks don't understand this. 74,041 people bought wolf tags in Idaho and Montana last year. 411 of those guys connected. Only 42 people took more than two wolves. The success rates are drastically low, and we have to make sure that we are funding reimbursements for those guys or they are not going to be in the field anymore. We're, we're, we're told every day, we call them Wolf Team 6, the, you know, the, the, <laughs> the few that can get this done. Uh, and, and those guys, uh, we got to keep money in their pockets or they can't afford to be out there. I'm, you know, wolves are are like, we talked about wolves being challenging. I've never seen anything like them. I've invested, uh, over 200 man hours and $1,500 in just fuel for each of the 39 wolves I've caught. And granted, I'm not good at it. (laughs) I'll, I'll preface with that, but, uh it's expensive. And, and so just, you know, want to also make sure that everybody understands, uh, we're very cautious with where our funding's going as well. So.
0: Absolutely. Well, um, have you got anything else you need to add? You've done such an outstanding job, Justin, you're a great spokesperson for your organization and for sportsmen's every sportsman everywhere. Uh, I don't have anything else. I mean, you've covered everything that I wanted to talk about and I didn't even have to ask you very much stuff. This was awesome.
1: Well, sorry. I, I, you get me started talking about wolves. I rattle on forever. Oh no. You got to shut me down. Uh, uh, you know, I guess I'll, I'll just, uh, one, the one thing we haven't gone over are the nuts and bolts of the, of the organization and how it operates. And so, um, you know, I was just kind of telling you a, a little bit about it, but, we looked at the, you know, when we first started this program, trying to understand who are the most successful wildlife nonprofits in the world and what do they do and how do they become successful. And you start looking at, uh, you know, the Sheep Foundation and Rock Mountain Elk Foundation and Ducks Unlimited, and and we just SCI. said we, we want to be, yeah, SCI exactly. We want to be that successful. We want this program to work. Um, if we're going to expand outside of Bonner County uh you know we want this to actually work and so uh, we've w- diligently worked to try to mimic those successful organizations so um our funding comes from membership uh but 62 percent over 62 percent of our funding actually comes from our fundraiser banquets so we have different chapters of volunteers who put together fundraiser banquets once a year um and i challenge each of our chapters to three things Um, a fundraiser banquet to help the money keep flowing fundraiser banquets coincidentally, just like the other organizations, that's where the majority of people sign up. That's where the majority of people renew their membership is at the Mm -hmm. annual banquet each year. That's where the majority of the funding is created. That's also um, where the majority of advertising uh, shows up in the public eye because you, you have something to be advertising and showing people, right? Um, and so we've, we've kind of mimicked that same model. We've been working really hard to kind of franchise our banquets, uh, so to speak, so that when, when, uh, somebody comes to our event, uh, it's going to be different than the others. And we strive to make it that way intentionally. Mm. Um, we know that people have a dozen banquets to choose from each spring banquet season is when and where it is for a reason. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. uh. We work really hard to put on a good show. Um, I can tell you, there's been numbers of times that the wildlife display at our banquet, I would have far surpassed the amount I paid to go to the banquet just to see the wildlife in there. Um, We've got a a couple of gentlemen that have been really generous, uh, one specifically at putting on a themed wildlife display each year. So, you know, one year it might be elk versus wolf. And one one wall is all the trophy bulls that have come out of North Idaho for, for generations. And the other wall will be all wolves that have been harvested in the same ground. Um, Ooh. you know, the one, one year we did just strictly elk and I don't know how many 400 inch bulls we had in the room, but it was very, very impressive. Mm. Um, so mm. we host these fundraiser banquets. Uh, they consist of live auction, silent auction, a dozen games or so. We give away a ton of guns. Um, and, uh, we've got a general raffle, etc. feed them really well, um try to have interactive games that are fun for everybody that uh, that attends that's 62 percent of our funding in addition to that we've also applied for and been granted state funds uh, the Idaho Fish and Game Department has actually come on board to support our program about five years ago we started applying for what they call a uh, community challenge grant through the Fish and Game Commission and that program has a hundred thousand dollars total available you can apply for up to $10,000 for each of the seven regions, and then there's a $30,000 state grant. And um, we've received uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in grant funding um, through that program. In addition to that, Idaho also has uh, what they call the Idaho Wolf Control Board, which was um, formulated by our governor uh, back in the day, um, strictly to create funding and implement funds for lethal wolf control, so that is funded in part by um, the Idaho Fish and Game Department, in part by uh, livestock uh, branding fees. And mm-hmm. um, anyhow, the, so there's the Idaho Wolf Control Board. Uh, they gave us a two hundred thousand dollar grant last year, and and uh, the uh, Fish and Game Director said we'd like to see what you guys can do to create wolf harvest in these areas of chronic livestock depredation where we have had very little harvest in the past. So what we did is we jumped those reimbursement rates up to $2,500 per wolf. And that shifted, uh, enough of our sportsman's efforts that 42% of that $200,000 was spent in units that had not had hardly any wolf harvest prior. Wow. So, um, that led to this year where, uh, the Wolf Control Board again said, well, you know, we will grant you $200,000. Uh, let's be creative in how we utilize it last year we ran out in three months we burned through that money really quick and, and right. uh, really had some guys after it so this year we we tried uh dabbling in being creative you know we wouldn't spend state money on the first wolf a person caught uh hoping to encourage guys to stay there and, and continue to harvest wolves hoping to get that funding to last a little bit longer um it, it didn't uh, work as productively, so we're going to go probably back to the drawing board before next year. But sharing that with you so that you understand that you'd asked the question earlier about our state being supportive and and you know and where where that has come to, to be in mm-hmm. today's uh, today's world and and that's where we're at right now. The state recognizes the value in utilizing sportsmen efforts through incentivizing uh, them by reimbursing them their out-of-pocket expenses to keep those guys in the woods as opposed to paying the $9,000 per wolf that they average utilizing uh, you know, other, other entities to remove wolves. Wolf harvest is extremely expensive. For the state to remove the 1,900 wolves that we have removed, that would be uh, pushing $16 million it would have cost, and 65% of that state tax funding. Right. So utilizing sportsmen's efforts is huge. The nuts and bolts of the program basics are you sign up for $40 to be a member, If you're not out targeting wolves, if you have kids in sports and you don't have the time to go run a trap line every 72 hours or every 48 hours, your money goes right in the pocket of somebody who has spent money out of their pocket and put in the time and effort and energy to be successful harvesting a wolf and it gives everybody a way to help out with the problem. Everybody sees it. Everybody's complaining about it. But what are you doing about it? That's my question to, to all of those folks. As a person who's targeting wolves, you, your $40 membership entitles you to be reimbursed for your expenses up to the max allowed in the unit you harvest the wolf. So once you remember, you harvest a wolf, you send us a copy of your fishing game check-in slip. Um, so in Idaho, it's a big game mortality report which shows what you you took the wolf out of, proves that it's legal harvest, uh, gives us some documentation and a way to police that a wolf was actually taken. Um, in the state of Montana, they call it a wolf harvest registration form, same concept. You send us that and a copy of your expense receipts, we write you a check, you keep the wolf. We've done that over 1,900 times and have never missed a payment.
0: Nice. Well, I'm looking it up right now as you're telling this about membership. It's right on your website. I enjoy running hounds in the Northern Rocky mountains. And I'm going to pay a membership for you today because obviously I'm not going to be the guy from Indiana that's going to be trapping wolves out there consistently in the Rocky mountains, but I'm more than happy to support the guy that is. So looks like it's pretty straightforward, easy to, uh, to get signed up there. And I'll make sure that we, uh, attach a direct link to your website on the show notes of this show. Justin, you got anything else for us?
1: No, sir. I think I probably rattled you off long enough. I, I, I just, uh, am very, very appreciative for the opportunity, Chris. I, I appreciate you reaching out and, and, uh, thank you so much for, for your support. And, um, I don't know that we can do it, to support you, let me know.
0: I just don't know of any other, th- any other project that has changed the way houndsmen hunt than the explosion of the gray wolf population and it's something that uh you don't have to look very far to find allies to to um, join on the efforts to to try to come up with some real solutions for this problem that this seems like it's being crammed down our throats and i can't think of anybody else that's got a better grasp on on what's going on than foundation for wildlife management you guys are you guys have really set the bar for for how to get involved and and come up with real solutions so it's been my honor to have you on the podcast and i really appreciate your time to talk to us
1: well thank you so much i, I really appreciate it too the uh, one thing i'll share is uh, you know this is far from over and oh, and yeah. uh and it takes an army to accomplish these things if anybody's interested in starting a chapter of F4WM, if anybody wants to learn more about the program is willing to donate an item to one of our fundraiser banquets. Um, you know, again, everybody sees the problem. You know, we've got, we've got one, one pack up here in the Coeur d'Alene mountains that uh, when last time I talked to Leon about it a couple of years back, he'd said that he knew of at least 16 hounds that had been killed in that area. And, and for that reason, guys can't run it anymore. I mean, you, you just can't, that pack has learned that that's a feeding call And uh, so it it compounds the issue. Now the lions aren't being run out of there. Now the cats aren't being run out of there. And now it's a predator pit. And so um, it's just a real dynamic issue. And and we need help. Um, If you're willing to to donate to one of our banquets, uh, auction items, if you're willing to support through donation funding, the expense of a firearm for a a fundraiser banquet, if you're willing to to, uh, volunteer a few hours of a day sitting in a trade show booth, to, to help promote our organization, please reach out to us. We, we're constantly looking for help.
0: Right, right. Well, Justin, I appreciate it, man. This is this has been great. And I, I think you hit on a lot of, we've got a lot of skilled people that listen to this podcast. And if you've ever thought about supporting an organization, here's your opportunity. You know, if you're working leather, if you're a woodcrafter, whatever it is, if you can come up with, with something, if you just got got the money to um, and the means to to sponsor a firearm, that would be huge. So I appreciate it. Great conversation. That you guys, sportsmen in the Rocky Mountain right now are lucky to have you, Justin. The Thank episode. you, Chris. Yep. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Houndsman XP podcast. Like I said, we will have the direct link to Foundation for Wildlife Management. There's a lot of information there. You can see all their accomplishments, the things that they've, they've been successful in in and, and various states out there. I strongly urge you to go there and uh, check out our website, houndsmanxp.com, and you can check out who we are. So until next time, thanks for listening to the Houndsman XP podcast. This is Fair Chase.